Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the NCDS Podcast. I'm Zach DeWall, your co-host, along with Mike Beal. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Margaret Lehman-Blake and Dr. Shannon M. Shepard to discuss right hemisphere damage. Margaret Lehman-Blake is a professor and chair of the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Houston. Her research focuses on cognitive communication disorders associated with right hemisphere brain damage to understand the underlying deficits and to develop treatments. She is the author of The Right Hemisphere and Disorders of Cognition and Communication and the co-creator of righthemisphere.org, a website designed to provide education and resources to patients, families, and clinicians. Shannon M. Shepard is an assistant professor of communication sciences and disorders at Chapman University and director of the Cognition, Rehabilitation, and Neuroscience in Atypical Language Lab, or the Cranial Lab. Her research focuses on investigating linguistic and prosodic deficits following left hemisphere and right hemisphere stroke using brain imaging including EEG and MRI. She's a founding member of the International Right Hemisphere Collaborative, which was founded to improve knowledge of and research for individuals with right hemisphere brain damage. Well, Dr. Shepard, Dr. Blake, uh, thank you for joining Zach DeWall and I for the ANCDS podcast. We're going to be talking about right hemisphere disorders, specifically uh, prosody issues. Um, and other problems um, that happen after right hemisphere damage. Uh, I'm curious, um, since I don't know how you could say this, uh, right hemisphere disorders are not a common topic. Uh, There's not a lot uh, written about it. Um, And so I'm curious how you got interested in right hemisphere disorders. Dr. Shepard? Oh, sure. Um, I guess, so I initially, my PhD was all in um, left hemisphere stroke, chronic stroke, and um, specifically people who had aphasia as a result. And um, as part of my work there, it was all looking at online sentence processing, using eye tracking and ERPs primarily to understand the specific syntactic deficits in that population. And as part of that work, I was was interested in not reading comprehension, but auditory comprehension. So naturally that led me to, um, you know, asking questions about prosody and specifically how does prosody interact with syntactic processing in an unimpaired brain, but also in someone who has uh, aphasia. And um, so I did my, completed my dissertation, which included a couple of projects that were specifically looking at, essentially how do people with uh, aphasia process pauses in speech and how does that interact with syntactic and semantic information in the sentences to help them parse the sentence appropriately. And um, as part of my, you know, the, the lit review that of course comes with that dissertation work I came across a lot of art, well, maybe not a lot, but quite a few articles that would also discuss, you know, linguistic prosody deficits in people with left hemisphere stroke, comparing them to patients or participants with right hemisphere stroke who primarily had emotional prosody deficits. So that's where I first um, 
kind of became interested in right hemisphere. And I, I just, I happened to get the opportunity to complete a postdoctoral fellowship with Dr. R.G. Hillis at Johns Hopkins. And she specifically was looking for a postdoc who was interested in heading her right hemisphere aprosodia project, looking at both expressive and receptive deficits. And for that project, we, um, and it's still ongoing, would track patients from that acute phase of stroke. So within the first week of stroke, and then we tested them and whenever possible, we acquired both neuroimaging and then a full assessment of prosody at the acute phase. And then at a three month mark, six month post-stroke and 12 months post-stroke. And so I, um, I guess that's my, I guess if your question is where did my interests come from, it really was just starting from the linguistic prosody side, but then also realizing how complex prosody really is, how much information is conveyed with prosody and how we really don't understand much about prosody itself or how it's interacting with all these other types of information that we have to process along with prosody to really understand the true purpose or the true meaning that a, a speaker is trying to convey. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Dr. Blake? So I was introduced to right hemisphere disorders in my master's program and found the, the cognitive aspect really interesting. And the more I do, um, the more I, my real interest is in how people communicate what they really mean. You know, this intended meaning and all of the different things that we use to convey that. Not only the words, but the prosody, the facial expressions, gestures, how we interpret that from someone else, you know, interpreting all of those different cues, plus what we know about that person, what environment we're in, you know, the context in which we're communicating. It's, um, it's just amazing that we can so rapidly integrate all of those different things to figure out what somebody's really trying to express. And so, for me, you know, that that's really been the most interesting thing for me is, you know, this broader communication and all of the different factors that go into it. And so, you know, my whole career has been looking at right hemisphere. I will admit that prosody is probably on the bottom of my list of things about right hemisphere that I'm interested in. Um, but with this particular project, uh, the, the group decided that prosody was the easiest to define and would be the easiest starting point in this really massive projects that we, that we set up for, um, for ourselves. And, um, it, it has been fascinating and it, and it's really been good for me to understand, um, you know, how important this disorder is because, I know I never really taught it very well. Mm. Um, when I write, I don't write about it as much or as well as I think I should because some of the work um, that Shannon's done and through um, Dr. Hillis's lab 
is showing that this is probably, well, there, their studies do show that it's more common than neglect. Mm -hmm. And neglect seems to be like the one disorder that people know goes yeah. along with right hemisphere. And so it, it's really been good for me to see how important this really is. And it's changing the way I talk about right hemisphere because now this is a critical component of it. It's not just like, oh, and then there's aprosodia. <laughs> right, which is, I think, for, for therapists and I'll, I'll speak from, you know, my, my personal experience. Prosody is kind of at the bottom, not at the bottom of the list, but it, you know, honestly, I, I can't think of a, a right hemisphere patient and I haven't had a lot of them. And, and Dr. Blake, you and I have talked about this in the past, the fact that we maybe don't see as many of these uh, clients as we should, but I can't really remember that being an important focus, I have to admit, of treatment. And reading through your papers on prosody, uh, one of the things that was interesting to me, and I had never really thought about it, although it makes a lot of sense, it seems almost obvious now, is that there are different kinds of uh, prosody. And maybe, you know, to kind of get us started maybe a little education for our listeners. Um, what are the, the different kinds of prosody? Are you? Sure, Dr. Okay. Shepard. Um, <laughs> I think you can first easily distinguish linguistic prosody from emotional prosody where um, emotional prosody is prosody that speakers use to convey the emotion, you know, that they're feeling. Um, and I think we, you know, often in our papers or presentations will say, you know, a sentence or a statement like, it's you can have so much, such a different meaning than if it's spoken in anger, it's you. Um, so certainly there's a lot of information, important information conveyed by emotional prosody. And that's in contrast to linguistic prosody, which has a more grammatical um, or a pragmatic um, conveys grammatical or pragmatic information. So, you know, where are they helping you break up the clauses in a sentence to help you process the syntax? Um, the contrastive stress between a noun versus a verb, you know, present versus um, present, mm -hmm. for example. So, um, and also information about turn-taking. So that type of pragmatic information is embedded in there as well. So those are some, I think just, you can initially distinguish those two main types of prosody. And then within those, um, for our emotional prosody work, we really do distinguish between people who have expressive prosody deficits where maybe they can understand, you know, they can understand someone's prosody, but they cannot express their own emotions very well in their own speech and um, people with receptive prosody, receptive emotional prosody deficits where they have um, difficulty comprehending. And then of course, there's someone that can have difficulties with both receptive and expressive emotional prosody. And similarly, you can break down the linguistic prosody um, in the same way, you know, receptive and expressive as well. Yeah, so do we, is the thought these days that we can tease apart different kinds of prosody in the sense that 
Um, we can have people who just have problems with linguistic prosody, but not mm -hmm. emotional prosody or, or mm -hmm. just pragmatic prosody and not emotional prosody. So there are different parts of the mm -hmm. nervous system that are responsible for those different types of prosodies. Yes, definitely. I think um, a common theme that has emerged and um, and again, I think our, our work has shown that uh, we still need to continue doing work and more research has to be done. But I think something that we is, is commonly seen is that people with left hemisphere stroke and often resulting aphasia will have difficulty with the linguistic prosody. Whereas people with right hemisphere stroke have um, more difficulty with emotional prosody. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of the different neural structures involved, so we are, um, there's more evidence, more and more evidence emerging that similar to the left hemisphere dual stream for language processing, you know, that Hickok and Popple um, um, presented, you know, in their work. Yeah. They, um, we are finding that there is evidence that there may, might be a similar organization for emotional prosody in the right hemisphere. Hmm. So certainly there's going to be some bilateral, um, there would have to be some bilateral interaction for um, any type of prosody, but that there is this more right lateralized stream Mm -hmm. where there's a dorsal stream for the expressive prosody and then the uh, ventral stream for receptive prosody. And um, our work, Dr. Hillis's work, and then also um, the Durfee and colleagues paper that we shared with you does um, support that idea that there is this emerging evidence suggesting that there might be a, a dual stream organization very similar to the left hemisphere language network but specifically for emotional prosody. Yeah, it seems that in some of the tests that I'm familiar with um, that are designed for assessing people with right hemisphere damage, the, the prosody assessments are more focused on the, um, the emotional, the, the affective mm -hmm. prosody rather than uh, mm -hmm. linguistic prosody um, specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have found that in, um, in some of the, the work that we're doing. So we looked at research spanning 50 years, starting back in 1970 up to 2020, um, to look and see what that 50 years worth of work tells us um, and, and what we know about prosody and aprosodia from all of that. And we have found, like Shannon said, that the emotional prosody really does seem to be kind of a right hemisphere dominant function. Mm -hmm. um, but the linguistic prosody isn't, isn't as clear. Yeah. And I think, Mike, with what you said with, you know, very specific forms of prosody, you know, we can definitely separate out the emotional versus the linguistic. But as Shannon um, said there's a lot of different types of linguistic prosody and those really haven't been well studied to look and see if you know somebody may not be able 
to manipulate the sentence level prosody to differentiate questions from statements, but they can use prosody appropriately to distinguish, you know, clause boundaries or something. We, we don't have work at that level, um, yeah. but we can broadly say, yes, there's, there can definitely be a difference between linguistic uses of prosody and yeah. the emotional uses of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think most therapists, when they're assessing their clients with aphasia um, and they're testing <clears throat> single word comprehension of nouns and verbs or sentence level comprehension, that they're entertaining the idea that um, part of the comprehension difficulty is a prosody issue. Mm -hmm. um, I, that, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. One of the things tying back to what you said initially, Mike, that you, you can't think of a client for which <laughs> prosody was a major concern of yours. Um, I know Shannon can speak more to this because of her experience, both clinical and research, but if the problem is more often with emotional prosody, um, it may be that we're not seeing it that much as clinicians mm. when, you know, unless you're talking to somebody about emotional issues, you know, we may mm. not be giving them the opportunity to show us their deficits. Right. Um, you know, and, and I don't think we know um, if there are differences between kind of spontaneous prosody use mm -hmm. and um, the elicited prosody use when we ask them to say a sentence in a happy voice or something like that, you know, and if those are distinctions and if they can do it when we ask them to, but they can't do it when they're trying to express to their husband or wife mm. that they're really angry, <laughs> you know, then that's a, a, a very different communicative um, issue. Yeah. And you, you just said something <clears throat> that seems really interesting. And that is that, you know, when a person steps into my office, that's a context. And yeah. there's probably a prosody that is appropriate for that context. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I am not capturing the range of uh, prosody um, needs. And so I mm -hmm. wouldn't pick up on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, could you tell us a little bit about the, the, the projects that uh, your um, ANCDS, the writing group has undertaken uh, regarding uh, prosody? Sure. So this whole project started um, in 2015, which seems like eons ago <laughs> at this point. Um, but a, a group of us met at an ASHA convention. Um, you know, I called up a bunch of people who I thought were interested in right hemisphere issues. And we sat down and started talking about the problem that we don't have a good definition or description of what right hemisphere cognitive communication disorders really is. Um, what disorders should fit in that label, which should not, um, you know, and 
and the complications that um, that arise from that, both for clinical diagnoses as well as in research. How do you decide who to include versus exclude from research? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started talking about that. And the idea came up to maybe see if we could develop consensus criteria like they have for primary progressive aphasia, where you have some core deficits that you have to have those core deficits in order to be diagnosed with primary progressive aphasia. Mm -hmm. And then there are some um, associated deficits that you may or may not have, and that may help identify subtypes. So we thought, hey, that's, you know, that's a nice structure and a nice plan to start with. And it very quickly became apparent that we didn't know enough to be able to do that. And um, just, you know, some of the problems that that arose were within our small group, um, we didn't have consensus on what should be core deficits versus the associated deficits. Um, Some people really wanted to restrict it just to the communication deficits Mm -hmm. and the cognitive deficits were all just associated. Other people wanted a blend of communication and cognition. Um, So, you know, among people who are interested in this population, we're looking at it differently. Yeah. Um, We also found that, especially with some of the language and pragmatic issues like inferencing or... um, uh, discourse comprehension deficits, that those are so ill-defined that, you know, some people think they know it when they see it, but then somebody else will see it and say, oh, I no, I wouldn't call it that. Yeah. Um, and so what we decided to do is look, um, look through the research that has been done to see what we could pull together. So, you know, of everything that has been um, researched in cognitive and communication disorders after right hemisphere brain damage, what can we pull from that? You know, what do we already know? And then what do we still have questions about? So in order to do that, we um, divided um, the project into four sub projects uh, based on kind of disorder areas. Mm-hmm. So the first one was prosody. And again, we made that first because prosody is easier to define, easier to agree upon what it is. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we've been working on for the past four years, pretty much, is the review of 50 years worth of work of looking at prosody and aprosodia. Um, and then the next big project, which... Um, the group is actually going to sit down and talk about in another week or two is um, the language and pragmatic aspects. Um, if we're still alive and have <laughs> left, then we'll do cognition. Um, and then we left, we had separated out neglect and we left that for, we put that at the end because um, that literature just seems really daunting because there is so much there that um, we figured, you know, we'll, we'll get to that maybe someday. But so that, that's, that was the impetus for this larger project. 
and then the papers that we're now writing up have to do with prosody and the um, questions and, and how we've decided to organize what we found to try and answer some of these unanswered questions about prosody. Um, so Dr. Blake, Dr. Shepard, um, one of the papers that you've written is looking at what are the what is the nature of prosody um, issues in right hemisphere damage? Well, we've talked a little bit about left hemisphere um, prosody also. Um, what what did you what did you find? What what is specific about the right hemisphere when it comes to prosody? So um, this paper was specifically looking at um, comparing people with right hemisphere damage, primarily due to stroke, um, but also you know potentially you know brain tumor or something like that as well. Um, but I, the majority of the literature, I think in all of our papers is stroke mm. and um, compared that population to a group, uh, groups of individuals who do not have brain damage. So specifically looking at those two groups and comparing them on different prosody tasks. So in this paper, we looked at emotional or linguistic prosody tasks. And um, this was a true meta-analysis. So there were enough papers in this, um, and with these topics that we were able to actually do a true meta-analysis, um, a statistical meta-analysis versus mm -hmm. more of a review. And essentially, you know, we did find that there is a lot of evidence to show that individuals with right hemisphere damage are susceptible to emotional prosody deficits. The majority of the papers that we looked at were specifically investigating receptive emotional prosody. And I think that's just because of the inherent difficulty in studying expressive prosody. It's just, it's just more difficult to conduct those studies. So uh, there are fewer of them in general. And um, the findings for linguistic prosody deficits within right hemisphere were not as clear um, again, we looked at different types of linguistic prosody, and um, I think our ultimate conclusion is that more work needs to be done yeah. within linguistic prosody, but we can confidently say, I think as Dr. Blake was saying earlier in this, you know, in this podcast, that individuals with right hemisphere damage are likely to have emotional prosody deficits, and we cannot confidently say if there are going to be linguistic prosody deficits or not. The mm. one area of linguistic prosody where it looked like there might be an issue is with understanding speech acts. So, you know, differentiating questions from statements, from commands, um, that there were a couple papers that suggested that that might be problematic for some people. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the the word level and phrase level used grammatically to differentiate word forms or clause boundaries that really didn't seem to be a problem in, um, in patients with right hemisphere stroke. Yeah. 
I think something that was really highlighted, particularly with this paper, because it included um, 70 articles were included. So it was a, our largest you know, review paper from this set of papers. So something that I think really stood out to all of us who were involved in writing this paper are the methodological issues that seem to be inherent and including things like not correcting for uh, multiple comparisons, not statistically correcting, um, often. Um, I think I remember there were also just something as simple as uh, demographics. Yes, a lot in, of in, times. In the small studies, not reporting that information. Demographic information, which is really important. You know, we have found Studies have found that education um, is an important factor. Age um, is another one. And these are often not reported, um, sometimes not even at the group level, but often not at the individual level. And that's something that I think is a common theme, again, across all these papers, is if we could have more papers that report as much participant level information as possible, it would really help because we we really don't know, we still don't know a lot about the deficits that we're going to see. And even if a paper you know, might say that overall at the group level, we are finding this effect, we are reporting individual participant data that can help, I think, researchers, but also clinicians you know, really understand, okay, well, maybe at the group level, we're seeing this, but there are still several individuals that show this opposite pattern, You know, for example, yeah. even though it's not statistically um, significant. So I think just because we know so little about these topics, that is something that would be really helpful, you know, in the future. Right. And I guess in a, in an area where not much is published, right. including as much of that information as possible is because, you know, we're still kind of at square one, aren't we? Exactly, exactly. I think, um, you know, it, it can be difficult to do. I know journals, a lot of journals have very strict space, you know, guidelines, word, word limits, and so on. But I think that's just a general recommendation we have made in our papers now is whenever possible, if this information could be provided, it's, you know, it's, it's helpful. Or even, you know, statements like, saying this percentage of patients showed this pattern. You know, like some, some information about um, the patterns that you're seeing or because um, something that's very common is maybe as a group, you know, they, they show up impaired, but when you look at individual patients, it's that two thirds of them are impaired on that task, not everyone, for example. So even that type of information I think is helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you relating this to clinical practice for um, any of the listeners who have seen patients with right hemisphere stroke, you know, they look very different from each other. You know, mm -hmm. it's a very heterogeneous group. And if you were to take, you know, 10 of your recent right hemisphere clients and describe, you know, in maybe one sentence, what they look like, mm -hmm. but that description is only going to really cover a portion of those clients because not everybody's going to have the same deficits. And it's only really going to 
um, get those aspects that are really striking or the, you know, the largest, um, most apparent impairment. And, you know, you completely lose all of the heterogeneity within the group. And then, you know, trying to expand that out to um, treatment recommendations, Mm. you know, you you might make a treatment recommendation based on that really terrible description. And it clearly is not going to work then individually for many of the clients. And so that that's one of the problems with the state of the literature right now is the results that we get are from these groups that are all lumped together. And we don't really know how often aprosodia happens because, you know, we get these group results and we don't know if it happens, you know, um, more for certain types of patients versus others and what those characteristics are. Or what the trajectory of re- recovery is for mm-hmm. the aprosodias. Do we know much about how, I don't know why, but I, I think of something like e- emotional aprosodia as um, a, a skill that maybe people can adapt to um, more easily than a skill that requires a lot of real discrete processing information. I may be off here, but um, I think I remember reading in one of these papers that uh, many, many people with right hemisphere damage will demonstrate a prosodia in the acute stage but um, not when we look at them one year or more post. Is that common? Um, yes, I think we, and again, this is based off of just, you know, a couple of studies, but um, we did report what we were able to find. Um, I think the majority of patients with right hemisphere damage will show um, a receptive aprosodia acutely, but within, you know, that, and I, we defined acute for these papers as the first week of stroke. Mm. Um, whereas it does seem in many patients that those deficits will resolve, you know, once they become chronic and, um, or once they reach the chronic stage of recovery. Um, but it still is, there are still patients who have, um, who will have sort of these long lasting deficits. And I, I think that we found it was around like a third of patients roughly, and that there was uh, around a third of patients, depending on the, um, the paper, they will have these chronic deficits. Um, and I think that depends on how you're measuring them. Um, something that's really difficult, even with receptive prosody is, you know, when you do a naming task, you know, like the BNT, mm-hmm. when you're asking a, a neurotypical person to name the picture of the bed, like, I don't know, I'm sure it would be at ceiling that people would say bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar with a word level comprehension task, um, you know, most people who are, you know, neurotypical would point to the bed. Whereas um, 
Prosody is difficult, more difficult. You, I have not seen, um, it must exist, but I have not seen, um, at least with my work doing at, with sentence level prosody, that I've gotten a group of healthy controls, neurotypicals to agree 100% that a sentence sounds happy to them. Hmm. You know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's harder. It is harder to study. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. I think we need, do need to develop more. And I know this might be jumping to a different topic, but I, you know, developing more assessment options and um, standardized assessments. And that's when you're just considering people who are, you know, monolingual right. English speakers from the United States. So then prosody, I think, can take on, again, you know, if you're a native English speaker or if it's your second language and you're fluent, a bed will be a bed. But happy could sound different, you know, depending on your, uh, prosodically can sound different, you know, depending on your cultural background. There's just a lot of, it's just, um, it's a harder, it's just harder to measure, so. Yeah, and well, we know in just, you know, casually observing people and, you know, even lay people know that people have different speaking styles and some are right. more animated than others, um, you know, if you have a mood disorder um, that may affect your prosody to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in um, motor speech disorders, the you know, perceptual assessments are tricky. Mm -hmm. um, I imagine prosody is even trickier <laughs> it's tricky yeah, yeah. <laughs> what what how do you envision let's say the, the 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 best outcome here how do you think speech pathologists once we start to tease this all out how do you think speech pathologists are gonna approach the assessment of Prosody. Are they going to rely on perceptual judgments alone? Are they going to use instrumental measures to accompany those perceptual judgments? I think ultimately the combination would be ideal. Um, I am currently working on a project based off of, you know, the data collected during my postdoc. Uh, we're currently analyzing it and it's been going on for a, a long time. And part of the problem um, with that particular project is um, that's for expressive prosody. And we are finding that even though a group of trained research clinicians, we can say all agree this person has a prosodia, but when we look at their acoustic measures, they do not, some of them don't look impaired compared to the group of healthy controls. So I think we cannot currently, we can't cur currently rely on acoustic features alone. So I don't think we can say, you know, record someone's prosody on um, like an iPad app or a tablet-based app and then have that tell us, okay, they have a prosodia. I don't, we are not there yet. I think ultimately it would be great if we could get to a place where, um, where it's easy to present 
the receptive and uh, the receptive emotional prosody over something like a tablet, mm-hmm. you know, and have at least what they're listening to standardized. Um, and I think we are at a point where, I guess, with funding issues that might be different depending on where you're a practicing clinician. But ultimately, I think we could get to a point where, you know, there might be a prosody assessment available on a tablet where at least we have standardized the the sentences or the words that they're hearing. And then I think also maybe, you know, recording and giving us some understanding of how their acoustic profile compares to a group of controls. But we are not there yet. Um, our, we've now kind of shifted our work on that project to just trying to understand what acoustic features are going to match with our listener, our trained listener judgment. So, and it's, um, it's tricky and I think we'll ultimately find that we'll have to look at the word level within a sentence and not just at the sentence as a whole. And I think that, I think that might be part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I would add, you know, and I, I've talked about this in terms of looking at pragmatic deficits too, that having conversations with family members mm-hmm. I think is gonna be a critical piece of this because like you said, Mike, everybody has, a different speaking style. And, you know, some people sound pretty aprosodic on a normal day. (laughs) (laughs) And others are are very animated. And if you're looking at how they speak after a stroke, if you don't know that they were one of those very animated people who really put emotion into what they said, they may look perfectly normal to you. And you really need the family to say, oh, no, you know, that is not who mom used to be. And, you know, having that extra piece, because they're also, again, going to be the ones who see the more natural prosody, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the clinicians who have that, you know, structured setting, and especially with the assessments are so structured. So I think that that always has to be a really important piece in assessing anything related to right hemisphere is how is this different or is this different from the way this person was before the stroke? Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. The- there, I worked with um, patients who I thought seemed pretty normal, I mean, mm. prosody wise. And then as soon as I was alone with the spouse, they'd say, you know, he's so different. And it wasn't just property, you know, yeah. but they would list a lot of things that had changed and ask when, when is it going to get better? And so I, I agree. I think a comprehensive assessment would have to include, you know, what has changed. Yeah. Yeah. I, this must be somewhat complicated by the frequent occurrence of or deficit awareness in this right hemisphere population. Mm-hmm. Have either of you or Zach, have, have you run across the patients, clients who have complained of, of prosody issues? No, it's interesting to hear and that's sort of what's coming to mind is when I do hear complaints even from family members if you're able to get 
the statement of, you know, what's changed and what have you noticed about them outside of, you know, very pointed questions um, targeting specific domains, that that kind of flatness might come up and they're, they just seem down all the time, you know, and I think that's always sort of been how I've interpreted it as a clinician is a mental health sort of component and, you know, mm -hmm. going through the loss of function and the grief that comes with that and mm -hmm. um, targeting it from that point of view, but um, never specifically with a prosody complaint. Um, so that's giving me some ideas of how to kind of parse that question out a little bit further and talking with the patient too. And is that how you feel or is that just how you're presenting yourself? <laughs> right, kind of teasing it apart from, you know, common problems like post-stroke um, depression or uh, even in some people, uh, something like neurologically based demotivated states like apathy. Yeah. Um, also seems like it would uh, present as a absence or a, a flatness of, of prosody. I have to admit, you know, and again, it's been a long time since I've seen someone with right hemisphere um, damage for whatever reason, my client base has been left hemisphere damage mostly and motor speech disorders for the last 10 years. Um, but uh, when I was working in acute uh, rehab, particularly early in my career, when you know I was making sure a lot more, uh, I won't say, concerned that I was dotting all my I's and, and crossing my T's and giving tests, I always felt weird about asking people to do things like, okay, now, can you say that for me in a happy voice? <laughs> you know, I always felt a bit cringy. Um, <laughs> I'm totally with people. you, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, maybe uh, besides creating accurate um, prosody assessments, if, if we could someday have uh, prosody assessments that, uh, you know, weren't cringy. Um, <laughs> that would be a bonus too. <laughs> that would be great, be great. It's, you know, I've certainly made a fool of myself in a lot of sessions trying to explain high versus low pitch or something. And I'm glad those weren't recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's um, kind of bringing in a little, um, pop culture to mm -hmm. all of this. Um, on the show, This Is Us, they introduced a character, I think in the fourth season, who had had a stroke, mm -hmm. a right hemisphere stroke, and um, had flat affect. And the it, it wasn't talked about very much, but in, in one episode, um, the, you know, the neighbor came over and was talking to this character. And she she said something about you know she perceived him as being upset mm -hmm. and he said i can't express my emotions through my voice but it doesn't mean i don't have them huh. and 
I almost fell out of my chair. I was so excited and, you know, just thrilled that that component of, you know, that type of deficit after a stroke is actually, you know, making it to pop culture. Um, And the, the actor who plays that did have a stroke in, in real life um, and had, you know, gone through rehab and gotten to the point where he could get back to acting. And they, the interview that um, I heard him do, um, I'll have to look up where it was from. Um, but unfortunately, he only talked about the physical recovery and his yeah. physical therapy and all of that. And I just thought, oh, you, you know, <laughs> you missed this opportunity because, you know, to me, the, the deficits that people are less aware of, um, those hidden deficits, mm-hmm. you know, that we all know in traumatic brain injury can be the most devastating because they look okay and people assume that they are okay. And those are sometimes the most devastating to relationships and to getting back to work because, you know, there's no assumption that accommodations need to be made or that a difference is, is present. Right, and people start misattributing their behaviors and, right. and uh, whatnot. So how do we know how dissociated uh, aprosodia is from the emotion that a person might be feeling? I think that's a question that we still, that still hasn't been answered. I know that in our, one of our papers, we did look to see if, um, and again, there wasn't, I guess we can't say definitively and um, answer this, but some studies have looked at whether or not people with aprosodia have um, at least emotional lack or have impairments of emotional semantic knowledge. So that's not the same thing as feeling the emotion, but at least understanding the concept. Yeah. And um, that's unclear about of whether it seems like some studies have reported that there is likely not going to be this co-occurrence and others have. Um, so certainly not all, at least they understand the concept. A lot of patients will at least understand the concept of the emotion. Um, but I think that we still need to know, we, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to understand, you know, this, the mismatch between what they're feeling and I think, like you mentioned, Mike, um, anosognosia, you know, typically when we assess that, that's focused on the motor deficits. Right. But certainly, um, just anecdotally, I know that there is an, an unawareness of their own prosody deficits in some patients. Mm-hmm. So um, I think maybe assessing that and, and I think that would help help kind of tease apart that question. Yeah. So when we're in the project where we're looking at what deficits may co-occur with aprosodia, we found that people with this receptive aprosodia are more likely to have deficits of um, recognizing facial emotions. So there may be something underlying, you know, this ability to perceive emotion either through prosody or through facial expression. The other thing that came out, um, and this was just in a couple studies, 
that looked at it, but people with receptive aprosodia also tended to have deficits affecting interpersonal interactions. And so, you know, the ability to convey what you're feeling through your voice is really a critical part of communicating. And when you lose that, then it does, it interrupts the ability to communicate efficiently and effectively with other people. Um, as part of my postdoc, we were testing a model, a theoretical model of prosody. And um, my, a, a paper that I've recently submitted has kind of looked at within receptive emotional aprosodia, are there different subtypes? So are there different causes that are different um, impairments that would lead ultimately to this, to a, 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 a <laughs> that would ultimately lead to a receptive emotional aprosodia deficit. Yeah. And, um, and we did find that there was, when we did a cluster analysis, there was a subset of patients who seemed to be impaired at a domain general emotion knowledge or emotional processing level when we looked at recognizing face, facial expressions. Right. And um, they were quite different from patients who had more of a specific deficit where they had difficulty attributing an emotion with a specific acoustic feature that would match to that emotion. So for example, when you're happy, you tend to speak it with a higher pitch. Yeah. When you're angry, you tend to use a lower pitch. Mm -hmm. um, so the, their knowledge of that, um, the match between the emotion itself and the appropriate acoustic feature was impaired. Um, so it does seem that there are different underlying impairments that all present as ultimately as receptive emotional aprosodia but it can be caused by different um, underlying deficits. So I suspect that, um, well, I'm hoping that future work will continue to refine that model of um, prosody that's based off of these patterns we're seeing in patients. Um, but also I think to inform, yeah, because that will inform treatment as well. You know, what yeah. is ultimately, what's the underlying cause of this? Is it that you're just having trouble with emotion processing? Is it that you only have trouble with prosody? And I think that there are patients with both. Yeah, I found it interesting in the paper where you were looking for what other cognitive issues um, co commonly co-occurred with aprosodia that amusia was mm -hmm. one of the um, problems that uh, you looked at. And I'm, I'm guessing that was just to kind of understand whether people weren't appreciating the prosody of others because something as simple as a, an issue appreciating pitch significance and change. I don't know. I, I found myself that the, the papers were provocative because I started thinking about um, well, music mm -hmm. and, and the emotion, my emotional responses to, to music. And, um, you know, is that, is there something shared there with my emotional responses to speech? 
Right. And, and so that's exactly what they did in that paper. It was a case study of mm -hmm. a gentleman um, who um, was a musician who, after his stroke, had developed this amusia. And so in examining that, then they also, the authors also examined his ability to um, comprehend the emotional prosody and, you know, found that relationship for the, the project itself, um, in terms of what you said, Mike, in, you know, if we looked for, um, you know, how did we find the study on amusia and think to, to yeah. look at that? Um, so what we did is we actually just did a search of papers that talked about prosody or aprosodia and then looked to see what was there. So we didn't go in specifically looking for deficits that might co-occur with prosody, but we started with the prosody first. And that was one of them that kind of fell out of the way we um, did the did the review. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. What's out there for treatment? Are there papers, um, are there recommendations? Um, anything that could kind of guide us towards um, not only assessing and, and sort of identifying these areas of deficit, but then moving forward and, and getting some progress with patients. Um, so are there, are there any directions to, to point us in um, towards reading or towards treatment? Jay Rosenbeck and his colleagues um, published a couple studies looking at treatment of emotional aprosodia. Um, I think they came out like 2014 through 2016. And what they did is they devised two different forms of treatment. One was more like a motor speech treatment where you really had them drill and practice the types of pitch and duration changes that you would need to convey different emotions. And the other one was a cognitive affective treatment, which focused more on um, understanding how you convey emotion through your voice. And, you know, using a loud voice and maybe kind of clipped syllables would express anger where something softer and lower pitch would convey emotion. And they devised these two different treatments because when they looked in the literature, they couldn't find convincing evidence one way or the other that aprosodia was a motoric problem versus more of this cognitive affective mm -hmm. pro, um, problem. So for each treatment, they had a six step hierarchy that you went through with lots of cues initially and then slowly fading cues over time like we do in a lot of uh, speech language treatments. And they found that both treatments were effective for the types of emotion that they worked on. So if they worked on a happy prosody, people got better at being able to produce a happy prosody. Mm. And for the participants in the study, they um, some of them got the cognitive treatment first and some got the motor treatment first, and then they had a break in between, and then they got the other treatment. And they found that people got better with the first treatment they got, regardless of which one it was. Um, 
And so it doesn't help us figure out what is this motor <laughs> problem or cognitive problem because both of them worked. Um, and then I think most of the participants did get a little bit better with the second treatment, but you know the difference wasn't as big. They did find that only the emotions involved in the treatment got better. So if they worked on happy prosody and angry prosody, they got better at being able to produce those types of emotional prosody. But if you didn't work on surprise or fear, then that didn't change. So it really was, mm. you know, whatever they were doing in the treatment, you know, was didn't generalize to other forms of emotion, but it did, they were able to use that prosody on different kinds of sentences. So it wasn't super specific, but you know, it was specific to the emotions. That's, that's really interesting. Cause when you said that, you know, whatever treatment they got first was the mm -hmm. one where the effect was noticed, I thought immediately, oh, well, it's a kind of a metacognitive thing. Their, mm -hmm. their yeah. awareness of their lack of ex expressiveness um, or maybe paying attention to the expressions of others is, is heightened now. Mm -hmm. But then you said, well, they just got better at the emotions that they practiced. <laughs> you know, that kind of, maybe it does still make sense, you know, with that story in mind, but. Um, I think that does make sense because mm -hmm. Each emotion does need a specific set of acoustic features that maybe an unimpaired person inherently just knows, but someone with, you know, maybe they've lost essentially that information. So it would be emotion by emotion to learn it again. Yeah. And even if, you know, part of the Part of what the treatment does is to draw attention mm -hmm. and to um, change the metacognition. It's mm -hmm. it's not enough for them to be able to um, generalize that to all different emotions. So you need that increased awareness and understanding, as well as a little bit of training mm -hmm. on the nuances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What each thing is that you're looking for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which thing you're trying to make. Right. Part of the work I have done is essentially looking to see if we give patients um, sentences to read out loud. Each sentence is paired with a specific emotion. And we just say, okay, this sentence is happy. You know, please say the sentence with a happy tone of voice and so on and go through each emotion of interest. And then we do the same test again, um, back to back but now we've given them the acoustic features that would help them produce that emotion. So for example, happy, high pitch and a fast rate. And then, um, and then as a final condition, we have them just listen to a sentence that's spoken with that emotion and then repeat it. So essentially we're giving them more and more cues along the way. Mm -hmm. And um, we found that in the patient's Quite a few patients did improve, maybe not to normal compared to the group of controls, but a lot of them did improve. 
In the control group, we found the opposite. When we actually, when we gave them the acoustic features, they became less, um, they had less variation in their pitch. So it constrained their speech. And I think that's because it's a task that's really, I mean, it's, it's unnatural. It's in a lab, um, you know, we've now whatever they're happy sounded like we've constrained it. Cause now they're trying to be okay. High pitch, fast rate, mm-hmm. for example. So, um, whereas in the patients we saw, well, in many of them, we saw the opposite that they actually got better. So that was an interesting finding. And I think, um, perhaps a future treatment would maybe start with a, a simpler task like that, where we're giving, you know, specific cues, but then ultimately, you know, incorporate some more naturalistic treatment or naturalistic um, practice opportunities, because ultimately, you know, I don't, we, I think you would reach a point where that's no longer helpful Mm. and it is, it would be constraining their prosody. Yeah. You know, I, I, going back to my cringiness with assessing prosody, Mm -hmm. I, I think it has something to do with the fact that emotions are about authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speech, I can cr- construct a sentence and, you know, make up things. And, but, you know, um, and of course I could pretend to be happy and whatnot, but, um, there is something obviously about emotions that are, you know, about our core selves, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, not sure where I'm trying to go here with this line of thought other than, um, you know, it makes thinking about treating this topic even more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree. And one of the things that our group talked about in reviewing all of this work, um, especially when we are looking at the acoustic cues, um, Ethan Weed and his colleagues published a review looking at um, the manipulation of different acoustic cues. So frequency and pause duration and um, things like that and didn't really find you know kind of like Shannon was saying that you know you can hear that something's wrong but you can't pinpoint one cue that is driving that mm-hmm. and um, so kind of thinking about that was kind of um, sparked some of the conversations but so much of this work is done in the lab you know mm-hmm. and done with you know, sentences that somebody gives you and asks you to, you know, say it as if you were happy and all these things that you're talking about. And we really don't know, you know, how that relates to their ability to use it spontaneously, which is what you need for good relationships. You know, Mm -hmm. being able to show that your true self. Right, yeah. That core part of you. Yeah, interesting. I will say that I I think even in the absence of, you know, maybe evidence-based treatments, one thing that 
piece of advice I've given to patients as well as their caregivers, family members is um, if this is a, a problem for that patient, if they have difficulty expressing their own prosody, then, you know, informing the family about that, you know, that they should be aware that maybe, you know, if they are appearing to suddenly get more and more frustrated, it could be that they're, they were expressing anger or they were trying to express anger, but they yeah. weren't, you know, they weren't able to do that in the same way that they had prior to their stroke. Um, so to be aware of that, you know, that that could be a potential issue that would cause a breakdown in communication, but also whenever possible to help train the patient, you know, it seems like you have difficulty expressing emotions. So if you're feeling an emotion, you should, you know, whenever possible, try to tell your family member, right. I'm yeah. really angry or I'm really sad um, yeah. to help repair those or prevent communication breakdowns. And then also on the flip side, you know, if someone, if a patient has difficulty comprehending emotional prosody, also educating the patient and their family about that so that the family members can say, can then tell the patient, okay, this, I'm really upset or I'm really happy about this or whatever the case may be. Um, so even in the absence of maybe modifying the receptive or expressive prosody, at least it's giving patients and their families a tool and education around that this, this deficit and um, helping on some level to improve quality of life, relationships, friendships, yeah. um, because you know, that, I, oh, go ahead. No, 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 that's a great point. It just, you know, of course, you would wanna develop some compensatory strategy right. to, to, to manage this and the, of course, that gets us back to the critical ability of our of us being able to diagnose that this isn't right a, a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think something um, that has been so great for me being a part of this project, and I am grateful to Dr. Blake for I. I think I kind of fell into this, um, and she's been so great about letting me remaining involved. Um, you know, I went into my postdoc really interested and in, I had a really narrow focus on emotional prosody and right hemisphere stroke and how does that change over time. But I think this project, being involved in this larger project has really broadened my understanding of where aprosodia falls and fits within a broader right hemisphere deficit. You know, understanding that maybe we don't know exactly where it fits into for example, pragmatics, which we know are often impaired in this population, but at least um, giving, kind of giving me a, a broader perspective to realize that aprosodia could result from a pragmatic deficit. It could be the cause of pragmatic deficits. You know, it is, it is a part of a broader profile and um, a, I guess a broader impairment profile. So it's not, it's not necessarily this narrow um, thing. It really yeah. does implications that go far beyond, you know, specific emotion, um, specific communication encounters, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we're kind of, I don't want to take up too much of, you know, keep you all day here, but um, maybe we could wrap up with, um, 
Dr. Shepard, something that I think you, you kind of alluded to, and that is, do you think we are going to get to a point where we diagnose different kinds of right hemisphere syndromes, I guess you could say. Um, we, that's so funny because um, we had this, a similar conversation a few weeks ago, Dr. Mm -hmm. Blake and I did. Um, I, I hope we get there. I think it's certainly possible to get there. I think we need more research in this area. We need more um, funding to be devoted. Mm. I think um, a lot of research, and I, you know, I study aphasia, I, I'm interested in aphasia. I'm glad that that research is funded certainly, but I, I think um, there certainly have been fewer right hemisphere projects funded. So I think if given the right amount of attention and focus, we certainly could get there. And I don't know when, and I think also with advances in technology, I think that will help make the assessment piece easier and maybe even the treatment piece. Um, yeah. So I think we could get there and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will, but yeah. I think Dr. Blake will probably have a, a, um, a better, you'll, you probably have a better understanding because you've seen where the field has gone and um, where it was. And yeah. I think I'm, um, it, it, it has always been my hope that we've been, that we would get to that point um, yeah. where we would have valid, reliable tools to be able to assess it, um, that we would have treatments, that we will have treatments that we know are efficacious um, and that clinicians get the education about this population and, and not just speech language pathology clinicians, but med students and mm. OTs and PTs and, you know, everybody who deals with them to realize how important the right hemisphere is, how yeah. important it is for communication. Um, and that speech language pathologists should be the first person you think of when you encounter a patient with right hemisphere disorder. I am much more hopeful and encouraged now than even like when we did the right hemisphere podcast, what was that two years ago or so? Yeah. Yeah. About two um, years ago. Yeah. And it, and it's because um, I'm seeing young researchers like Shannon, um, mm. like Jamila Minga, who are interested in this um, uh, Melissa Johnson who's at Nazareth College. And then we have some colleagues in Australia, uh, Ronell Hewitson um, and Petrea Cornwell who are also doing right hemisphere work. And, you know, seeing people who are, are not just looking at this as a passing thing, yeah. you know, oh, I'll do a right hemisphere project and then I'll go back to what I really wanna do. But, right. you know, having people who really want to stick with this population and really help figure things out. Um, I feel a lot less lonely. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, through this project, and then Shannon and I are also involved in another group where we're looking to define some of these disorders, you know, what, what are right hemisphere pragmatic deficits? How do you define it? And what impairments belong in there? And if we look at social cognition, how do we define that for this population? And so seeing 
you know, that we we're getting, a, you know, just barely critical mass, but, but we're getting more people um, interested in this. And I think, you know, the more we talk about it, the more education opportunities we provide mm -hmm. so that students get excited about it so that clinicians will um, appreciate it more and see that it, there is a way to learn more, to you know, do clinical research, to do something that they're not going to be on their own making stuff up as they go, but there's a support system you know, and, and we're learning more and we're all helping each other out. Mm. So I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm more hopeful than I used to be. Yeah, so maybe hopefully we're moving into a, an, an era of right hemisphere advances and um, awareness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Blake is really, I mean, Peggy, you've really spearheaded. <laughs> I've been very formal, but um, you've really spearheaded so many um, group efforts that I think have probably brought a lot of people into this fold or field, I guess, both of them that maybe wouldn't have necessarily devoted this time to any, <clears throat> to right hemisphere in general. So it's, um, I think you're, you're certainly um, a big part of the reason that obviously that all of these projects are happening. Yeah. So someone has to champion the cause and Mm -hmm. stoke that fire of interest and whatnot. And I think, you know, the work that both of you have done in explaining it to, you know, our audience and the, the therapists and students out there, you know, that's just going to elevate everybody's awareness a little bit. So the next time they see someone with right hemisphere disorders, they're, ability to think about this person and their issues just going to be a little bit more on point. So thank you very much. Thanks for the work that you do. You're welcome. And thank you for spending the time and helping us get the way out. It's so important. Sure thing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please visit our website at ancds.org.